Good morning and God bless you. So good to see you this morning online, here in person. It's a good thing. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 5. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, it's a longer portion today. We're obviously not going to examine every bit of this, but we are going to refer to every single verse. We'll read them now, and then we'll refer back to each section as we go through it. Mark 5, verse 21 through 43, and we'll title today's message, Jesus and the Trolley Problem. If you know what that philosophical dilemma is, we could have called it Jesus Solves the Trolley Problem, but we'll just talk about this. We'll explain this thoroughly, then break this down as to how people try to solve this, and then talk about what you need to do about it, and then what Jesus has done about it. Jesus and the trolley problem. Mark 5, starting in verse 21, here, God speak. And when Jesus crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hands, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak. Let us see Jesus in his glory, for in his name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. So we're going to do an imaginary thought experiment. And then again, talk about how Jesus addresses this in an impossible situation. Has anybody ever had one of these where they present you this impossible situation? 
and it sort of brings you into what do you really think about things. Well, Dr. Al Mohler, the briefing we listen to every day, Monday through Friday, it, he comes on at 5 o'clock and all that, and he had brought this up, and he went to part where we were going, but of course he only has just a few minutes, and we have a little more this morning, and we're going to explain this a little further because you don't really enter into these things because they're really not designed for anything other than to get you to think about your worldview, but we know what our worldview is. And then I was waiting for my brother coming in from uh, Tampa, and I was in the cell phone parking lot area, and there is a you know big board there and shows you when things are coming in and all that, and and all that, and then I saw a friend of mine walking by, at least he looked like him, he's, you know, a little older these days, you guys know him, and uh, he just had that certain walk, you know, and it was Mike, Mike, oh, you know, our friend, and I said, well, I wonder if that's him, and then I saw the Jesus Saves hat, and the Jesus this, and all that, and, and it looked like he was just about to get on somebody and talk to him, and I said, is that you, and he said, yes, and I Went ahead and rushed on him in the bathroom <laughs> and talked to him. We got talking for about half an hour or so and all that. And he had mentioned this broadcast. And if I read it, I said, I haven't read the transcript yet. I need to do that. And it had this trolley problem in it. And I thought, that's interesting. He said, you know, I, I ran across some people and he's witnessing all the time, as you know. And uh, he said, there's people out there and, and I'm talking to them. There's no, there's no absolute truths. There's nothing like this. You can prove it otherwise and all of that. And I said, well, I need to think about that. And I didn't think too much about it. I, you know, I had family coming to town. It was all these birthdays, celebrating with my dad yesterday. It was wonderful and all of that. But Friday night, which is Saturday morning, about 2 o'clock, suddenly it was like an eruption in me. And, and this, this idea came to me. So from about 2 o'clock to about 8 o'clock, I worked on this and, you know, I know enough of the scriptures, and, you know, I took about six classes of philosophy, so I, I understand some of this stuff, and, of course, I know God. And it was interesting because about 6 o'clock, I was praising the Lord, getting so excited about what I'm going to deliver you now and, and relating it to scripture because that's where our authority lies, not in some dream I had. I mean, give me a break. I mean, seriously, don't give me a break. Don't, don't. I've got something the Lord delivered to me. No, no, I've got a word from God that's in his word, and we're going to do that. Well... There I was, though, I was praising the Lord and sitting in what we call the fan chair where I relax and all that, thinking, how am I going to bring this to my friend? And at 6.06, he texts me. And I thought, well, you know, I don't think it's too superstitious. I think that, you know, this is right. And so I kept working on it a little bit, and this is what I'm bringing you today. And so, again, we're going to start with a little bit of a thought experiment here that you've probably heard before. I know there are some in this crowd today and some that will listen later uh, that have heard this before, and you can find it on the Internet very simply. But here it is. Now, listen up. Even the kids can understand this, and so will you, and you will get something out of it if you get that look off your face. Sorry. There's a runaway trolley barreling down the railroad tracks, the railway tracks, and ahead on the tracks there are five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. It's going to crush them. And you're standing in the train yard, next to a lever. Now, if you pull that lever, the trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. Simple, right? Of course you're going to pull that lever, right? But then just as you're about to pull that lever, you notice that there is another immobile person on the other side track. What will you do? 
Well, you have two choices. You can either do nothing and allow the trolley to kill the five people but save the one person, or two, pull the lever, which will kill the one person but save the other five people. Again, what would you do? What is the right thing to do? Now, many people would say the answer is simply that one dead is better than five dead. That's what most people would say. And I'm not saying that's, that's, that's wrong necessarily. But they say, you, of course, you should pull the lever. That seems to be the most practical solution. That's called utilitarianism. It works. However, others would say that the morality of an action is based on whether that action itself is right or wrong. Therefore, you have no right to kill the one person, even if it means the other five will die. You weren't in that situation. You just were put in it, and you can't murder, right? Again, what would you do? Now, us smarty-pants Christians would say, what would Jesus do? Well, yeah. What would Jesus do is a good question. But what Jesus would do may not be able to be the same thing you should do. Because Jesus can do things that you can't. So it's really not what would Jesus do, is what would Jesus have me do. Right? Because Jesus can do things that you can't. Now sometimes the lines between right and wrong don't seem all that clear. And good people, even in the church, even Christian people, your friends, your family, your loved ones, that really, you know, have good motives, disagree. Can we agree with that? We know it's true. And there's various scenarios like this that pose hypothetical, ethical problems. And for you that, you know, are just getting into college or been there and you haven't taken Philosophy 101, this will be one of them. This was brought up many times. And Immanuel Kant is, you know, a certain way and, and others think a certain way. And, uh, you know, Rousseau thinks a certain way. Descartes thinks a certain way. And they have these ideas and these hypothetical, ethical problems. And there are various philosophies that describe how to deal with such issues. They go by names such as utilitarianism and deontology, which I just used both of to answer what is known as the trolley problem, okay? Now, thankfully, this is just a hypothetical scenario. You're not in this position, and presenting two murderous choices in an unsolvable, no-win predicament. You know, there's no real context given. How did you get to this place? Who's, who's putting these people down? Are they under the death penalty already? That's a cruel way to do it. What's going on here? We don't have anything. And so you really don't owe explanation to people that bring that out to you like that. Again, in a situation where there's only these two murderous options are given, the opportunity for a pure choice has passed, and only poor choices remain. And you don't owe anyone an explanation when they try and use such tactics. However, such impossible choices might reveal your ethics and your worldview and help you think through the reasons. And you might just not think, well, one's better than five. That's just what I've got. That's it. Really? Are we going to do wrong to get a chance to do right? See, there's, so there's these things you're presenting, and life does that. I've got no way. I had no, how many times have you seen this in a movie or in real life? I had no choice. So sometimes these kind of thought experiences help you to think through your reasons. But some will use these sorts of hypothetical scenarios as a license to judge God. Can God make a rock so big that he can't let, that, that's absurd on its face. And the religious leaders did this to try to trap Jesus. Whose wife is she? Whose are we supposed to pay taxes or not? Remember, Jesus answered these types of things all the time, and he never fell for the bait, and he would often turn the questions around on them. 
the baptism of John. Is it of God or is it not? They knew they couldn't do anything about it. So that's the thing. Now still, after all that, even though you and I are not going to have to choose whether to pull the lever, as humans we're sometimes put into impossible and inescapable situations. It's gone too far. There's no right answer. There's no good way out and no way to avoid some level of guilt, shame, and regret. Can I get an amen? You know it's true. We do it. You're probably facing something like that now. It's like, here's a situation. I need to make this decision. And if I look, if I pull out and look at it, this is what it is. But then you're kind of in the forest and there's trees there and, you know... Anybody doesn't get what I'm saying? And here's the thing. These ethical dilemmas, whether they're hypothetical or very real in your life, bring to you some of the most pressing questions that people have always had. Like, where do morals actually come from? What principles are the highest form of good? Are we to believe Star Trek? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one? Right? I'm I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying we need to think about things like this. What do we do? Is God going to allow us to put in a situation that there is no right answer? I'm going to give you a big yes to that. Because we think, uh uh-uh, uh, you need to learn about God. Let's learn about God today. Amen. Hallelujah. Because he puts us in situations that only he can do so that we worship only him. Ah. See, we've got this thing called our imagination. And if God must be greater than our greatest imagination because otherwise our imagination is God. See, people don't think about that. But if you, you know, uh, the highest conception of God must be God. Otherwise, your imagination is God. And people don't think about that. And, you know, philosophy was always called the queen, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, theology is called the, the queen of the sciences. There is no king. It means, you know, the, the leader. But philosophy is part of that. And Paul used that a lot in the scriptures, and so did Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus solve the trolley problem in this passage in a way that you're not expecting, in a way that we cannot do. Praise his name. But I know we've got some thinkers in here. And I know this, this gets you going. You start thinking, okay, what is the highest form of good? What about the problem of evil? Is this life all there is? And if this life is all there really is, then is there no real purpose for our pain? How do you know God is good when you see all this bad? Huh? Huh? How do you know God is good when you see all this bad? Why do these things even happen? Why was there even an apple in the first place? Now, we've talked about that, and and we've got all kinds of sermons about that, but we're not going to address all of that, but we're going to see something here about the trolley problem and understand that Jesus is greater than our imagination and about what we can think, because what we see, it's not blind faith, it's a faith in evidence, but the evidence is Jesus himself. Now, some people think these moral questions are ground to blame. We're going to look at every verse, don't worry. Some people think these moral questions are ground to blame or disbelieve in God, but you can't make God answer your this problem should have one solution questions. God isn't, listen, I'll mention this again, God isn't trapped by time, space, or your imagination. There are always mitigating circumstances, always things that we can't see, always things. See, God isn't just breaking in and doing miracles. He is providentially guiding everything. There's not a radical molecule in the universe. Otherwise, he's not God. There's other things that he's dependent upon, and God is dependent on nothing. God isn't trapped by time, space, or your imagination, and this 
that we're going to read today, that we have read and we're going to look at, is proof of that. You're saying, but I couldn't do it. Yes, I know you couldn't. Bow the knee. God, if he once again is not trapped by time, space, or your imagination. There are always mitigating circumstances. Think of the great flood and how Noah warned the people to change for over 100 years before God brought forth judgment. Or how God spared Nineveh when they did repent. Or how God would have spared Sodom if there were even just, as Abraham argued, 10 righteous people there. God isn't trapped by imaginary scenarios like the, are you going to kill one person or five? Or, when's the last time you beat your wife? No, you don't get that one? Okay. Are you going to kill one person or five? God can do what you can't even imagine, and that is the point. Now let's look at again at our text, Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Let me read verses 21 through 24 again. And when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her. She may be made well and alive. And he went with him. So here's Jesus. And up comes Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue, which was like the local church of Jesus' day. And this prominent leader of the religious community desperately asked Jesus to come heal his very sick, pay attention, 12-year-old daughter. Somebody 12 years old. 12 years old. And she's at the point of death. Now Jesus must come now and quickly. And Jesus agrees to go. And a great crowd goes with him. He says, all right, I'll do it. They want to see Jesus rescue this young girl from death. Now let's look verse 25 to 28 and see the story unfold. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better off, but she was growing worse. I believe she was at the point of death as well. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I'll be made well. So on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, a woman with her own sickness came up behind Jesus. She had a severe illness for 12 years. Her condition made her unclean. She wasn't allowed in the community. She wasn't allowed in the synagogue. She wasn't allowed to be touched for 12 years. But she pushed her way through the crowd. I mean, they might have taken her life for doing this. Unclean, unclean. They had to go around with a bell. Unclean, unclean. So she's pushing her way through the crowd, thinking that if she just even touched the fringe of Jesus' robe, she'd be healed. Now notice this scene, and see how it pictures a 12-year-old girl's illness and a woman's 12-years-old illness. A 12-year-old's illness and a 12-years-old illness. And here is Jesus with the trolley problem. Which person did Jesus value more? Who would he heal? Was it the daughter of a prominent community member? who was about to die, or the woman, an outcast, who'll never get a chance like this again. Time was of the essence. If you had to decide, which would you heal? If you stop and help the woman, the little girl will die. But if you go to the little girl, the woman will die. Jesus was in an impossible situation, but he wasn't trapped. Jesus was human, but he was also God, and he came to do the impossible. Now let's read verse 29 through 34. But you see the setup here? 
He's in the trolley problem. He can save one or the other. When we had five and one, we could say, well, five is worth more than one. But here you have little girl, old per- way. Uh-huh, you see? And you can immediately shout, well, this, this, that, and the other thing. But wouldn't somebody else say something else? What if it was one child on the track and your child on the track? You think. Don't extricate yourself out of this so easily. Verse 29 through 34. And immediately the blood dried up and she left. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And a disciple said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, Who touched me? In other words, everybody's touching me. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, because she might have felt to heal, but she still wasn't out of the crowd. You made us all unclean. Jesus ain't got time to heal us all. We're, we're doing something to you. Don't you do that? Someone else gets blessed in the way that you want to get blessed, and boy, how do you feel? Hmm. He looked around to see who had done it, and the woman came down in fear and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's not that her faith has made her well. The fact that she did this because she had faith is what he's saying. Jesus made her well. He's not something out there just standing and you just tap into Jesus. Wrong go, bucko. This is faith in Jesus and what he can do. Faith is not some power that you possess, like some consciousness that Jesus gave you. Jesus is the power. Boy, we need to say that these days. Daughter... Because you had faith, because you came and did it and thought, I know Jesus, he can do anything if I just even touch him. He goes, you're right. Go in peace. There's more there. And be healed. So when the unclean woman touches Jesus' robe, again, but here it is. Jesus has made the choice, hasn't he? I'm going to heal the woman. And I'm going to let the little girl die. Wow. I seem to value the woman more than I did. Well, she was the one that got close. I never see you at church. Get out of here. Right? Think. Again, there's the trolley problem. And I said it. Now let me go further. What if it's one child that's yours on the track and another child that's yours on the track? What would I do? I'd jump on the track, but we'll get to that. It's not just five and one, it's one and one. This little girl or this woman, 12 years old, the disease is 12 years old. You go one way, she dies. You don't go this way, she dies. And now imagine if it's not five to one where you can just say, oh, well, five's better than one's better than five, whatever. One child is yours, one child is someone else's. What do you do? You can't be blamed. There's some sins that you get into and say, it's not my fault, but you still did it. If I wrecked your car, I didn't mean to do it. Oh, boy. Abby, the kids say, you've said, I didn't, Mommy, I didn't mean to do it. But she still gets in trouble. I don't like it. Sometimes it's like that, though. And what if it's one of each and they're both yours? How do you do that? Well, you know, you immediately try to figure, well, one's older than the other. They've lived a long life, or 
This one I know is saved, so, you know, do that. It's impossible, right? Can someone say impossible? Does God ever put us in impossible situations? The answer is definitely yes. He never gives you more than you can handle. That's a lie. He does so that you'll lean on him. Hopefully that's churning in your heart right now. You don't have to let other people put you in that situation. See, today is preaching Christ, my friends. So when the unclean woman touches Jesus' robe, she is healed, but Jesus calls her out. Fearfully, she falls down before him and tells her story, and Jesus commends her for her faith and blesses her with peace. Let's read verses 35 through 37. Anybody with me? It's interesting, is it not? While he was still speaking, now see, watch. He was still, she was still speaking, he was still speaking. These things are happening. There came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Isn't it funny how in the Bible you always say, you know, Don't fear, but then fear God. What? There's about 610 instances where there's fear mentioned. And pretty much exactly half, 305, are fear God. The answer is when you fear God, and it's not just reverential awe, it's fear. Like you fear your mommy and daddy and getting that whoop them. Right? But you love them and all that, then you don't have to fear other things. Mom told me to do this, and I'm doing this, and the kids say, well, you know this, that, and the other thing. Uh-uh, <laughs> I fear mommy more than I fear the peer pressure. Is it 11 or 12 that that changes? Four, ten. <laughs> 52, 51, 57. But that's what happens. So he's speaking and he says, don't fear, just believe. You came to me, you can trust me, even if you can't really tell what I'm doing, that's the point why you came to me anyway. I can do things that no one else can do. So as the woman and him were still speaking, messengers came. Mm. And said, she's dead. And Jesus said, don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. You say, well, he left the whole crowd behind. But when he gets to the new place, there's another crowd waiting. There's always crowds following Jesus. Except when he says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Then they all go away. And Jesus looks, this is John 6. Are you going to go away? And Peter said, why would we do that? You're the one with the words of life. They can think that you're a vampire all they want to. They can think, well, you got the charge. Well, I guess I'm not in. It doesn't matter. God's sovereign. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, I'm bringing up all kinds of things now. But let's continue. They came to the house of the ruler's synagogue. Uh. Let me say some other things. So Jesus and the woman were still talking, and messengers bring the bad news. Jairus' daughter has died. Did Jesus choose the woman over the little girl? It seems like it, because she was healed, and the little girl was dead. But that isn't the end of the story. Jesus tells Jairus to keep the faith. 
and they went to Jairus's house. Now let's read verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, that's Jairus, and Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. Now, they, wouldn't they go, Come on, you're crazy. We saw her breather last. Especially mom and dad. Actually, not dad. So now how do you feel about Jesus? Jesus, if you would have been here, Lazarus would have lived. Remember, this isn't the only time. Mm. And they laughed at him. It's like if I said, I'm going to dunk a basketball outside. You go, what, a nerf? <laughs> Me and my 5'2", or maybe 5'1 and 3 quarters, and I'm 57, so it's getting lower and lower. My license still says 5'3". I don't know what happened. That's why I stand on this platform like that. It's like, ha-ha, I'm 5'9". Yeah. 5'10", that's right. Woo-hoo-hoo. Big deal. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside because he was so angry and thought, no, I can't have no faith around me. No, 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 no. Stop that. This isn't people in their unity. This is Jesus and his singularity. He couldn't fit everybody in a house. He wanted everybody to see what's going on so they couldn't say, well, you know. Everybody saw Jesus. When you get born again, people know, brother. You ain't got to tell people. They know. Like these two over here, you know they're married. I, it's almost 20 years for me and my wife, and, and we're, we still do that too. You can have that forever. I don't care what anybody says. You wait. If I'm still around, you're still around. Jesus doesn't come back, but I hope he is. And you'll still be cuddling just like that. I know you too. It's good. It's good. And you share things together, and that's what's going on. So he says, okay, Peter, James, and John, these are my homies, right? Let's get mom and dad. Let's get in here, and let's throw down. So there's people all around when he gets to the house and he throws them out and comes in where the child was and taking her by the hand and he used Aramaic, it's Talithakumu, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. All kind of sermons in that. But immediately she got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And I'm sure a little bit of embarrassed too. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Of course, <laughs> they're writing about it. Everybody knows it. Don't choke on the hors d'oeuvres. It's no big deal. He's kind of proving a point there. He always does that. Don't tell anybody knowing that. <laughs> you see, even Jesus could tell you straight up to do something, even after he's done a miracle, and you're still going to do something stupid. No, we never drop the football. I mean, everybody that has anything to do with Michigan was excited the other night when 21-20 happened. And it wasn't perfect, and they were missing some players and all that kind of stuff, but it don't matter. All we know is 21-20. Oh, my. So when Jesus gets to the house, there's people all around crying for the dead girl. But Jesus says she isn't going to stay dead. He says she's just asleep. And the people laugh at this. They laugh at Jesus. He was too late. The girl had died. Jesus stopped for the sick woman. He made the tragic choice, or so they thought. But they didn't know what Jesus could do. And Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead with his words, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. Jesus isn't trapped by the choices of the trolley problem. People ask, who would you save? And Jesus says, both. 
Jesus is the answer to the problems that humans cannot solve and can't even imagine. Now, maybe you're thinking about the trolley problem, and you imagine that you could just throw yourself onto the tracks and save everyone by giving your own life. Well, that would be noble. But would your body actually be enough to stop the trolley? No. Because if five can't, six can't. Or that means the other five die. And if five can't, then then one certainly can't, or even two. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that even for some good people, people will die for. A good person will die for a good person. You know, jump on the grenade. Anything wrong with that? Is he saying something wrong about that? No, not at all. He goes, but here's the thing about Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? While we were enemies, he reconciled us to himself. So again, you can imagine that you're throwing yourself on it, and that would be noble, but would your body stop the trolley? And even if it was enough to stop the trolley, it's only one solution to one problem. The real problem is that everyone is trapped on the tracks of life. And the judgment train is on a course to crush us all. And there's no one who can stop it. No one but Jesus, that is. Jesus is the solution to any and all trolley problems. By dying on the cross for your sins, he was throwing himself in the way of your judgment. Jesus was crushed to save you 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5, which we read this morning, prophesied about it, saying, He, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus doesn't have to decide between saving one or five. He isn't making some list and say, well, you know, let's see who's naughty and nice. He's not saying, well, you know, they're worth more value because that's the president and they're a pauper. Or they're a really nice person and this person is a disgusting scum. Jesus isn't concerned about utilitarianism or deontological ethics. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from or how trapped you may feel or even be. The trolley problem is no problem for Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the the Bible declares so emphatically and says explicitly in the book of Revelation, Jesus is saving people from every, every nation, tribe, and tongue. The book of Romans says it this way, quoting from the Old Testament, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That can be you friend and could be brother and sister today today there are problems that people can't solve questions that humans can't answer situations that give you no choice but jesus himself is the solution to life's most pressing problems and impossible situations The truth is, in this life, you can't make all the right choices. Sometimes there is no exact right choice. You can't make all the right choices, but you can choose Jesus. He is your answer. Heavenly Father, 
I'm so glad that we have philosophy, windows to God, and science, and, and these things. And I'm glad for the opportunity. And I'm glad for how your word says, look, we don't have to prove everything. We're human. Other humans can be smarter than us. And, and just more clever. Or whatever it may be. And yet, all strength, all power, all intelligence, all imagination, everything has as its spring you. We're the ones that mess it up. But even when we're doing everything we know to do right and we're trying it and we really mean it and the motives are good, we're still going to find ourselves in situations where we can't handle it because you want to handle us. We give our lives to you, Lord Jesus. We pray this day that some hear and hearing this at some other time that you would use this message to let people know they throw up smoke screens and put up impossible situations as if they can stop you. They can stop us and our mouths and our intelligence and our philosophy and our reasoning, but they cannot stop you. So, Lord Jesus, enter in to hearts this day and every day. And even so, come and take us home, Lord Jesus, for it is in your name we pray. Amen.